Scripture reading this morning will come from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 9. I'll be reading from the English Standard. I believe on the screen will be the new uh, King James. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women whom have, whom have, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So I heard about a guy who was in a boxing match, and he was getting beat up pretty good. His, his uh, eyes were swelling shut, his, his nose was broken and bleeding, and uh, his, you know, his, his lip was cut. And at the end of a round, he staggered over to his corner, and he told his trainer to throw in a towel. He said, I'm, I'm, just, I'm getting demolished out there. I, I can't take this anymore. And his trainer wanted to encourage him to keep going. So, so his trainer said, no, 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 you're doing great. He's not laying a glove on you. And the man looked up through his broken nose, squinting through his swollen eyes, and said, well, then when you keep an eye on the referee, because somebody's hitting me out there. And I don't know about you, but do you ever feel like somebody's just hitting you out there? That you're just going through day after day of getting beat up and you don't know who's doing it? You don't know where it's coming from and you don't know why it's happening? Do you ever feel that way? Hopefully the answer to that is yes, because 2020 has felt that way, right? And to, today as we draw a close to our study of the book of Philippians, I want to think about that about getting beat up and how we respond and how we deal to some degree. You see, oftentimes we feel like we're getting beat up in this world. We're getting beat up in this life. We're, we're getting beat up and we don't know who's doing it. But the Bible doesn't mince words about who our enemy is and about who it is that is attacking us. The Bible makes it very clear that our enemy is Satan. The Bible identifies Satan as our adversary, as one who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Our enemy, the one who is beating us up, ultimately is Satan. Now here's the interesting thing about the book of Philippians. There's 104 verses in Philippians, and not once in those 104 verses will you see the word devil, Satan, evil one. There are no specific references to Satan in the book of Philippians. But when you approach the final chapter of Philippians, in the very first verse of chapter 4, you'll notice a statement that Paul makes that is very reminiscent of a, of a famous statement he made about Satan. So look at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1 with me very quickly. It's there that Paul writes these words. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, 
Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in the Lord. The language of standing firm in the Lord is reminiscent of Paul's instruction in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. In verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In verse 11, he goes on to call on us to put on the whole armor of God so that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul's words in Ephesians are an acknowledgement of the fact that even though Satan is a, a conquered, a defeated enemy, he is not a passive one. Satan's chief objective is to make us stumble. And Paul indicates in Ephesians chapter 6 that Satan has a lot of different strategies to bring that objective to fruition. I want you to think about this. If Satan wants to make us stumble, if Satan wants to diminish our light in this world, if Satan wants to make us less productive than God intends for us to be, then all he really has to do is find one of God's commands that he can repeatedly keep us from fulfilling, and he's done just that. And I think for a lot of us, the one command that Satan can attack us on, that Satan can interrupt our lives with, the one command that, that he can diminish our light with, the one command that he can, can, can manage to trip us up on, might just be the command that Paul presents in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's not presented as an option or a suggestion or, or an idea. It's presented as a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's an expectation that you have as a child of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And think about it. If Satan can keep you from doing that, if Satan can minimize your joy, if Satan can in fact steal your joy, then it is going to affect your ability to shine in this world. It's going to affect your ability to represent the kingdom of heaven completely in this world. It's going to have a negative impact on you to some degree or another. And Paul's going to say that Satan knows how to bust our joy here. He knows how to negatively impact our joy. He knows that the chief way that he can steal our joy is through worry. You see, worry is a joy buster. A joy buster is an attitude or mindset that prevents us from experiencing complete joy. Worry is not the only joy buster. There's bitterness, despair, even guilt. There are many things that are joy busters, but Paul is going to indicate that worry might just be the chief joy buster. And the way he indicates that is that right after he commands us to rejoice in the Lord always, he follows it with an instruction to be anxious about nothing. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. What Paul is saying is what Bobby McFerrin would so rhythmically sing 1900 years later. Don't worry be happy. And now some of you are going to have that stuck in your head the rest of the day. You're welcome. 
This morning, I want us to consider how worry is a joy buster and also how we can eliminate worry from our lives. Because I believe, particularly in the context of the year 2020, worry has plagued a great many of us. We may not admit it. We might not tell anybody. But the circumstances of life that we're facing probably have brought worry into your repertoire of life that you never intended. And worry can be the very thing that takes away our joy. And Paul is saying, hey, don't worry. So how is worry a joy buster? First and foremost, worry is a joy buster because it distracts us. You remember the time when Jesus visited the home of Mary and Martha? It's recorded in Luke chapter 10. You may want to turn there. It's verses 38 through 42 of Luke chapter 10. And as the story goes, Jesus enters the house of Mary and Martha. And a woman named Martha, this is verse 38 of Luke chapter 10. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha... Notice verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Now, what what did the text say Mary was doing? It said she was listening. And what does the text say Martha was doing? It says she was distracted. Now, most of the time when I reference this story, when I appeal to the story of Mary and Martha, I focus on the fact that Martha was just busy. But the issue is more than that. Martha was distracted. What that tells me is that her focus was not in the right place. And we find out where her focus should have been in the following verses. Look at verse, the second half of verse 40 in Luke chapter 10. And Martha went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. That's another word for worry. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus identified the problem for Martha. The problem wasn't that she wanted to be a good hostess. The problem wasn't that her accusation against Mary was unwarranted. The problem was that she was anxious and troubled about many things. Her worries distracted her from what was most important, from the one thing that really mattered. Her worries kept her from focusing on Christ. Worries distract us. What about the story of Peter walking on water? You can read about it in Matthew chapter 14. You have this situation where, where Jesus' disciples were on a boat in the, on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night fighting a fierce storm. And sometime in the early morning hours, Jesus, after, uh, after spending an evening in prayer, started walking towards them on the water. At first they think it's a ghost, but then Jesus speaks, and, and, and he says to them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. That's when they know, oh, this is Jesus. Upon realizing who it is, Peter then makes a bold suggestion. Peter says, Lord, if you say so, if you command it, if you give the order... I'll walk out to you on the water. It is a great display of faith. The next thing everybody knows, Peter's climbing out of the boat and he's walking on water. But then all of a sudden he starts to sink. And if you look there in Matthew chapter 14, in particular, um, 
oh, I don't know which verse it is, but if you look at Matthew chapter 14, here's what happens. Here's why he starts to sink. The text says he starts to sink when he sees the wind. Let's not get into the nuance of whether or not you can see wind, but he sees the storm. That's what our takeaway is. In order for him to see the storm, what did he not see anymore? He didn't see Christ anymore. In other words, in that moment, he got worried about the circumstances around him. He got worried about the storm, the wind and the waves, and he took his focus off of Christ. That's when he started to sink. And it wasn't the wind and waves that got him back up to the surface of the water. It was the one who he should have never taken his eyes off of in the first place. You see, once again, we have an example of someone who got distracted, whose worries took their focus off of where it should be, their focus off of Christ. Worry is a joy buster because it distracts us. It takes our focus off of the one who is the source of our ultimate joy. I think that's why when we turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and look at the first two verses, we receive these instructions. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Worry is a joy buster because it will distract you from focusing on Christ. But worry is also a joy buster because it will inhibit you. Now, the word inhibit, the word inhibit means to restrain or hinder or suppress an action or an impulse. So what I'm saying is that worry can prevent us from moving forward. Worry can prevent us from reaching our full potential. Worry can prevent us from experiencing the joy that God has in store for us. The classic example of this is in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, with the children of Israel. After they had been miraculously delivered out of Egypt by God and brought through the Red Sea to the borders of Canaan, the Israelites were ready to take possession of a land that God had promised them. But in order to do that, God orchestrated the use of some spies. Twelve spies, one from each tribe, are chosen, and they're going to be sent out to investigate the land. And after doing so, they come back with a unanimous report. That report of the, the, the land was that it is a great land. But it also carried a report that the land was well fortified with numerous other nations already inhabiting it. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, were ready to begin their mission. They, in effect, said, the land is great. God is with us. Let's go. But the other ten spies said, hold your horses. You can read in Numbers chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, how those ten spies gave an extraordinarily negative report about their ability to take the land. They noted the inhabitants of the land as stronger and bigger than they. And so they were worried about how dangerous the mission would be. And I want you to think for a moment. Those ten spies prevented a whole nation from moving forward because of their worries. And how was that generation of Israelites remembered? They're remembered as a generation that died. 
not because they went to battle and were slain. They died because they wouldn't move forward. And so God let that generation pass away before he continued on with his plan to give the land of Canaan to the Israelites. Their worries prevented them from moving forward. See, here's the problem for warriors. Warriors fail to enjoy the journey of today because they are so afraid about tomorrow. And the end result, most often, is stagnation rather than progression. Stagnation happens because worry is a weight. It's baggage that weighs you down. The Bible identifies it as such in Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 25 where Solomon said, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. So worry is a weight that hinders our progress. Worry inhibits us, prevents us from moving forward. That's another reason why worry is a joy buster. But there is a third reason worry is a joy buster. And that is because worry contaminates as well. To contaminate is to soil or stain or corrupt or infect. To make something unfit for use by the introduction of something that is unwholesome or undesirable. We understand contamination right now. Some of you feel contaminated right in this moment. We feel contaminated when we go out in public. We feel contaminated when we go to work. All because of this virus. We understand what contamination is, but let's think contamination in terms not physically, not medically, not scientifically. Let's think in terms spiritually. There's something Jesus said about worry in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, if you go to Matthew chapter 6 and you look at verses 25 through 34, you'll see a whole section of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that's dedicated to the topic of worry. In fact, Jesus will bookend this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount with instructions to not worry. You can see it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, the very first verse of that section. You can see it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, the very last verse of that section. And when something's bookended with the same words like this, do not worry, it means that the whole section is about that. Jesus is putting a great deal of emphasis on the fact that he does not want us to worry. In the midst of this section, Jesus has something very particular to say about worry. You can see it in verse 31 and 32 of Matthew chapter 6. He says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. The pagans worry, is what Jesus is saying. You don't worry. The pagans are the ones that worry. Jesus, in effect, said that worry is a characteristic of the ungodless, of the pagans, of the unbelievers, of non-Christians, of those who would be classified as the world. He says they have reason to worry, but you, as a follower of God, as a, as a disciple, as a, as a Christian, you don't have reason to worry. And the reason you don't have reason to, the reason you shouldn't worry is because as the old hymn says, you know who holds the future. 
The point Jesus is making is that worry has the ability to contaminate the godly with an ungodly trait. Here's the thing. When we worry, we, we live and operate like practical atheists. Let me explain what I mean. An atheist claims that there is no God. An atheist denies the existence and function of deity based on the mindset that there is no supreme being to help them through this life. And as a result, they believe that they are all alone to face the hardships of life. Warriors may believe there is a God, but they act like he doesn't exist. Unlike atheists, warriors may believe in God. However, like atheists, warriors function with the mindset that he's not here to help them through this life. And as a result, they act as though they are all alone to face the hardships of life. And Jesus is saying, you don't worry because you're not alone. You have a God who loves you, who cares for you. You have a God who's going to take care of your needs. You have a God who is here to support you. See, when we worry, we have the potential to contaminate ourselves with a characteristic that is absolutely 100% ungodly. A characteristic that Jesus associated with pagans. So we need to be reminded of Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. We need to be reminded that we have been called to not be conformed to this world, to not act like this world, to not imitate this world. We're called to be different, to be transformed, Paul would say in Romans 12 too. And it might just be that in the category of worry, that's the area we forget to be different from the world. But if we need to eliminate worry, how are we going to do it? How do we eliminate worry? I haven't really spent a lot of time in Philippians thus far, but now we will. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. I want you to see two things that Paul says you're going to need to do to eliminate worry. The first of these items appears in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4, Paul said, In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And he indicated that the result of such a prayer will be that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. So what Paul is saying is that prayer is your primary defense against worry. And I want you to think about prayer for a moment. I want you to think about the objective of prayer when it relates to worry. The objective is to give your worries to God. So I want to appeal to another verse. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, where Peter said, instructed his readers to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Think about the two instructions that, that, that Peter gave. Humble yourselves and cast your anxieties. Humbling yourself means making yourself small in comparison to God. 
Humility is a mindset that you put on or clothe yourself with, according to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. And it results in the acceptance of your limitations. It results in the acceptance of your inferiority. It results in the acceptance of your lack of control. But it also results in the acceptance of God's omnipotence, of God's superiority, and of God's sovereignty. So if you will humble yourself, accepting your, your lowly position and God's supreme position, if you will develop a mindset that grasps where you stand in comparison to Him and He stands in comparison to the rest of the world, then it should make you come to the conclusion that He's greater than whatever it is you're worried about. But not only does Peter say we should humble ourselves, he says we should cast our anxieties on Him because He cares for you. I think the language of casting is important here. When you're fishing and you cast a line, what are you doing? You're distancing yourself from the end of your line. You're throwing the line away from yourself. You're intentionally distancing yourself from what's on the end of the line so that you can catch something. I think in the context of worry, to cast is to release the responsibility about a concern over to God to say, I'm not keeping it here anymore. I'm putting it with you. I'm casting it towards you because I'm throwing it away from myself and I'm not hanging on to it anymore. I know that you've got it and I'm letting you have it. And here's the thing. Prayer needs to become the conditioned reflex of all disciples when it comes to worry. That was the case with Daniel when he learned that King Darius had passed an edict prohibiting his subjects from praying to anyone other than himself for the next 30 days. And what did Daniel do immediately after hearing of that law? You can look at Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10 and see what he did. He went home and prayed. Immediately after learning that prayer had been outlawed, Daniel went home and broke the law. Not because Daniel was a misfit. Not because Daniel wanted to get in trouble. Daniel went and prayed because Daniel had conditioned himself to respond to difficult circumstances through prayer. When Daniel worried, he prayed. It was his conditioned reflex. Think about reflexes for a moment. Some reflexes are instinctive. When you touch something hot, you instinctively pull your hand away. And then there are some reflexes that are learned. You see a red traffic light when you're driving. You don't think about it. You don't get the rule book out and read over what you're supposed to do when that light turns red. You instinctively transition your foot from the accelerator to the brake and start applying the brake to slow down your car to a stop because you have trained yourself with that reflex. Prayer needs to become one of those conditioned reflexes. That when worry rises, I immediately pray. That's what prayer should be. It should be a conditioned reflex of your life because you understand that when anxiety and worry surface, the best thing you can do is cast it 
to the one who's in control. So if you want to eliminate worry, first thing you should do is develop a prayer reflex. And if you want to eliminate worry, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, you need to change your mental diet. Look at what he said, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul just gave us a mental diet to ingest. After calling on Christians to not be anxious, Paul provides parameters for what our minds should be thinking about. The fact that Paul follows an anti-worry command with a pro-thinking command, to me, is an indication that the two are related, that there's a correlation between your worries, your anxieties, and your thought processes. And so if you, if you want to combat worry, if you want to eliminate worry, the first place you're going to have to start is by looking at what you absorb, what you take in. How much of your time is spent ingesting negative material? How much of your time right now is spent watching or reading the news? You know, that might be a great place to start if you're a worrier. Cut off the news channels for a while. Because they specialize in creating worry. If you're a worrier, one of the best things you might could do for yourself is to turn off social media for a while and not listen to the complainers and the haters that are out there in the world. You might just need to change your diet mentally. If you're not listening to uplifting music, encouraging music, you might need to change what you ingest through that avenue. If you're watching movies and TV shows that are depressing, you might need to change the channel what you ingest impacts the way you think. And what you need to develop is the ability to recall all the good things God has done for you. I referenced Matthew chapter 6 earlier where Jesus gave a lot of instructions related to worry. And one thing I noticed when Jesus addressed the subject of worry is that he intentionally pointed to evidence of God's involvement in our lives. In Matthew chapter 6, as well as in Luke chapter 14, Jesus noted God's care of the birds and the lilies as indicators of what we can expect God to do for us, since, as Luke 12 verse 24 says, we are much more valuable than they. So when Jesus gave his worry instructions in Matthew chapter 6, he was ultimately saying, hey, hasn't God proven that he can take care of what he's created? So why are you worrying? And the point is that what we know about what God has done in the past ought to trump our concerns about what we don't know about the future. And I think that's why Paul could conclude Romans chapter 8 with these words, verses 38 and 39. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things 
to come. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you want to eliminate worry, you need to develop a prayer reflex, and you may need to change your mental diet because the chief goal of Scripture is to encourage. Chief goal of Scripture is to teach us to set our minds on the things that are above rather than the things that are below. You need to change your mental diet? Start by meditating on His Word. Someone once said, worry never robs tomorrow of its sorrow. It only saps today of its joy. Worry has no place in the life of a Christian. Maybe today you're struggling with worry and you need to eliminate it. Maybe today you realize that you lack joy because you elevate worry. I want to remind you of a story I heard. Back in the 1500s, a cartographer drew a map of North America, and not much was known about the New World at that time, so he did what a lot of cartographers would do on unknown areas. He would write phrases like, here be dragons, here be terrors, here be monsters. But one explorer named John Franklin from, uh, from England got a hold of that map. He was the one that helped to find, that worked to find the Northwest Passage. And he scratched through all those phrases, here be dragons, here be terrors, and here be monsters, and replaced them with one simple phrase, here be God. And in doing so, he reflected one thing that all of us need to remember. That even in those areas of life where there are unknowns, even in those areas of life that we worry about, God is still present. No matter what you face today or tomorrow, God is still there. That's why you don't have reason to worry. So today, as we gather here and worship our God, let's turn our worries over to Him. Maybe your chief worry right now is where you will spend eternity. Well, we can eliminate that worry today. Because if you will confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, if you will repent of your sins, and if you will be immersed in water, those sins will be washed away. And one day you can be with God in heaven. Maybe today the chief worry you're dealing with is COVID-19. Maybe the chief worry you're dealing with is how you're going to pay the bills. Maybe the chief worry you're dealing with is family strife. Maybe the chief worry you're dealing with is the upcoming election. Maybe the chief worry you're dealing with is you fill in the blank. No matter what it is, 
it can be turned over to God because there is no concern of ours that is too big or too little for Him. If you need to turn your worries over to Him today, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.